I uh, wonder if, if you would do well today to be one of the, just put yourself in these shoes, that you're living in a palace, you are one of the 0.1 of the top 0.1%, extremely wealthy and connected. Actually, you don't really have to, to work another day in your life. How does that sound? Yeah, it's okay, right? Can you find yourself in that scenario? Well, maybe you could. Uh, don't, don't keep getting distracted going down that pathway. But then God calls you from there to the desert. Uh, and he asks you to shepherd a few sheep from your father-in-law. And then he calls you from there to go back to Queens and take everybody in Queens, 2.3 million people, and convince them to move to Canada. Not only convince them to move to Canada, but you have to move them to Canada. You have to cross all of those mountain ranges. Adirondacks, Catskills, Poconos-ish as you head up to the Catskills. That is a huge task, right? Um, Forty years you've done it. You would be considered one of the world's greatest leaders. And I think we have that in Moses. God called Moses to take two million people, over two million people, from Egypt through the desert to a promised land. And he did it by God's grace. What leadership skill? What would God use to train Moses to lead God's people? He spent some time in the palace, the top, top percent, the one family, the wealthiest family in the world. But he really used that back 40 years in the wilderness shepherding sheep uh, to train him as a leader. And so as God calls people to leadership, God uses the imagery and the lessons of a shepherd, of a shepherd to help all of us lead one another. You see that imagery often. We saw it last week in Acts 20. Uh, We see it today in 1 Peter 5 as Paul exhorts the leaders of the church, his elders, to shepherd the flock. As we consider this, we we recognize that that shepherding was not a a high calling. Uh, It was the lowlier task on the the totem pole there, especially in that day. Um, and, And so... Um, We need to be willing to humble ourselves to take on uh, the calling that God has given us uh, in leading others. And as we go from this paragraph, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We really find keys to leadership in life. I think the key to leadership in life. But also the key to life itself. The key to successful living. All of you are leaders, right? Pastor Andrew and I are pastors here at the church, but all of you are leaders, but all of you are living. And if you'll, if you'll take the time here, these few short moments, to follow me walking through this text, I know it will be very helpful to you in life, but also in leadership. So, a call to lead comes at first in verses 1 to 4. There's this urgent command to the church's leaders, and this is how we would summarize it, lead as caring shepherds. Lead as caring shepherds. Therefore I exhort you elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ 
partaker of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And so he focuses on this group in the church called elders. We're going to take just a minute with that to help our church understand the biblical concept of this group called elders. What comes to your mind when we say this word elders? I don't know. Um, It may just mean older people. Older people. Um, That would not be what immediately came to their mind. Okay, so let's take a moment with this and try to understand what the Bible means by elders. Okay, so we find first of all, verse 1, the recipients of this command. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. The idea of elders comes right out of Jewish culture. I wonder if anyone would be brave enough to consider where elders comes up first in the New Testament. Is it a positive group or body or a negative group or body? Think of the Gospels. Where do elders come up? The elders were responsible for for some bad things, weren't they? What's one thing they were responsible that was, was not very negative in the Gospels? The elders put Jesus to death. If you look up the word elders in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were responsible. This is the the ruling body of the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, uh, this group group of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So you would have elders as the Jewish leaders, the men in in the Jewish society of different communities. And in fact, you could not start a synagogue unless you had enough men in that city to lead as elders. Um, And so this would would be not just Jerusalem, but if you went to Jerusalem, you went to Nazareth. If you went to Nazareth, you went to all the way to Ephesus. Depending on the size of the Jewish population, you would have a group of men that helped make decisions and teach in the local synagogue, and they were called elders. That is exactly what the early church understood when they considered this term elders they like what you just have to read the bible with with jewish glasses first century jewish glasses and and you recognize this is exactly what happened um, as this body of christians started gathering together the first day of the week the the men helped lead and they were called the elders of the church the elders of the gathering the elders of the ecclesia so these were uh, men in, a, in, a, in the Jewish culture that the church continued on in this practice. As Pastor Andrew pointed out last week from Acts 20, there were two other terms that were used synonymously for this office. I wonder if anyone would be brave enough to give me another one. We have elders, and then what else do we have? Okay, that, that's synonymous with this office. So let's go there for just a second, Sam. There are two main offices in the church from Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3. You see elders and deacons. But the elders were also called pastors. Good. Shepherds from Acts 20. And in this text, too, we find it. And then there was one other term. Go, good. Overseers. Overseers. Uh, so those three titles in 1 Peter 5, we see it here in 1 Peter 5, where he says shepherd is the idea of pastor, and then he says shepherd exercising oversight, and that's the word overseer. Uh, But Acts 20, the same thing. These three are used for the same office together. 
So when you read shepherd, when you read pastor, think shepherd. When you think elders, you, you, you put in that, this concept from the Jewish synagogue of men that are leading in the assembly. Um, these elders. But also, it's, it's plural. I exhort the elders. Uh, this would, would often be plural. In fact, every time it comes up, it's plural. Unless it's talking about the main office. But when you see it being used... Every city had elders. If I could just real quickly tell you actually what it was, and, and if you disagree with me, like this is just the history of it, okay? I'm not saying that this is what, what every church has to do because every church does it differently, but this is the way it was. In one city, you had all these house churches, and you had an elder or two in the house churches, and those elders of the city at Ephesus would gather together, and that would be the elders of the city at Ephesus. And there are all these house churches that they're meeting in. Does that mean we have to meet in houses? No. Right? Eventually, they, they built these standalone facilities that they could worship at. Um, but that's the situation. That's, that's the, what was going on up until 1 Peter when this, this church was being persecuted and under duress. And so he's encouraging these elders to stick to the stuff. You want to quit, but right, be out there, lead. Right? And so it was a difficult time. Uh, it, was, it was probably rare for one of them to be a full-time elder. First um, Peter 5 talks about, uh, about this. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so even as, as, as early as... as you know, the, the letter to First Timothy, you had these churches, these groups of churches paying uh, some of these elders full time to be able to give their concentrated effort to teaching and praying and preaching. Okay? And so that's where this comes from. Um, that was not always the case. That was not the norm even. Um, and so I just praise God and, and thank you all for giving me that opportunity. It is a huge blessing. I'm thankful for Pastor Andrew uh, being willing to, to work part-time and serve as an elder uh, part-time. But our church is very blessed to be able to have that as well. Not just a full-time elder, but a part-time elder. There are many communities today, not just in the early church, many communities, most communities today, most situations in the world, that is not the case. Um, some of the men that I respect the most right now are serving in small towns. And they know the rest of their life they are going to be working full-time. And they are totally fine with that because they know there are just not enough people in their county to, to, to support them, um, much less in their church. And, and so this is, this is God's desire at times. I think this helps us understand this office of elder. It, it wasn't necessarily the way our tradition has developed this to where... As a teenager in your 20s, you decide, God's called me to preach. I need to go to seminary, get a degree, and then go on, I don't know, monster.com and find a church where they'll pay me full-time. That's what's happened, but that's not the way it was in the early church. What would happen is, is many of the men in each church would be godly men who loved the Lord. There was no false profession in that day, who were raising a godly seed. They had Most of them would get married raise up a family, and they would, those that were gifted to teach would serve as elders. Um, and, and by God's grace, I'd love to see our church that way. It's very healthy 
for our church to not just have full-time staff, but to have uh, even 10 men on an elder board who are serving, and many of them are not vocational. This was so helpful for me to serve in this way. I served as a security guard, uh, full-time, third shift. I served as an office manager. Um, These were helpful things for me to bring into a church setting. Um, It's just so helpful to be working full-time to understand what to expect of a family. And that if if somebody's working full-time, it's going to be really hard for them to make every single thing in a church. Um, And so it's good to have, and and this is one of the reasons we're going through this series, is is we're desiring as a church to bring on more uh, elders and deacons. Mookie, we're... we're, uh, the desire was that headed that way, and, and we'll see if we can lay hands on Mookie before he, whatever, before the Lord sends him to his next spot. Um, but uh, if it's not Brother Mookie, who's serving as an elder right now, even though he doesn't have that office, maybe me, you. Uh, consider, consider that. Pray about that. Um, it does not mean stop being a, an accountant or... Uh, the, the elder that a group of elders where I was ordained, there was a man who had a had a landscaping company. Another man was a VP at a big company. Another man was an accountant. Another so so they're all different types from all different backgrounds. This is healthy. Okay. All right. That was a, so, some some teaching on that. But I, our church just needs to be exposed to this because tradition needs to be thrown out the window uh, at times. Okay, and this is the way they did it. And I think it's healthy. It's healthy. Questions about that? We'll take them afterwards. Okay, because we're out. We're, the, top, the time is flying. So the elders, and I would just say that's, that's this idea of the elders among you. Right? These were, like, they're just people. It's not this laity, polity thing where you never see this person. No, you knew them. You, you would talk to them. You, would, you knew their kids, their wife. You, like, you would meet them for coffee. This wasn't this high and holy person that descends every once in a while to the study and talks to you. No! Like, you play soccer with this guy. They're the elders among you. You knew that the community was close. Okay. Now we got to keep going here. Um, but as a church, we need to recognize this. And I talked about that this morning. And, and you can see the Sunday school lesson. We, we talked about the call of this needs to be from the church, from God. It's not something you bestow on yourself. You can't choose this. God chooses it. But you also have to desire it. So those three callings. Uh, And then then meeting the qualifications. And we looked at that this morning too. Okay, look at the giver of the command. And and we'll just fly through this. The the elders, the elders among you. Who is giving this command? Well, that's significant. This is Peter. And Peter, first one of 1 Peter 1, says he's an apostle. That's fairly significant. That's very significant. But he doesn't classify himself as an apostle here. He says, listen, this is, this is my job too. I'm your fellow elder, right? I, I serve on the board with you, right? This is, this is my job as well as a teacher, uh, as a leader in the church. But he was also someone who was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Um, Peter probably looked on that with a little bit of regret in the sense that, what did he do when he, he, he saw Jesus at the cross? Jesus looked at him when he was denying Jesus. That hurts. But you keep following the story, and he became a witness in the positive sense, where he was called to the stand in front of all Jerusalem, and he said, believe in Jesus. 
You have put him to the cross. Repent and trust him because of the resurrection. So Jesus became a bold witness in Jerusalem and was persecuted for it. And so he's waiting for Jesus to come again. It's very clear. Uh, he's a fellow utter. He's a witness of the cross. But he's a fellow Christian. I am, I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He's waiting for Jesus to come again as he left. Acts 1, as he left, as he ascended, he will come again. Peter's dealing with this a lot. The early church was dealing with this all the time because they were being persecuted. It was rough being a Christian. And so they knew that it was just a little bit of time and the book of Revelation would, be, would come into fulfillment where, where Jesus would return and Jesus' prophecies that he would return and he would rule on the earth physically. And so he's, look, this glory that Jesus will bring with him when he is king of kings and lord of lords, I'm going to share in that because I'm going to be a glorious follower of him in that day. And all these people that are pushing us out of the synagogue, all these people who are taking our jobs, all these people who are making us leave their county, their city, because of Jesus, the tables will be turned and we will be sitting down to feast with Jesus. And so that is glorious. That is a glorious thing to look forward to. When Jesus is revealed. Now look at the command. Shepherd the flock of God among you. He exhorts them. This is an exhortation. This is not something you can choose to take it or leave it. We do need to exercise this oversight. Shepherd. I exhort the elders. If you believe that God has called you into this. It's not something you should run away from. Right? As the... As the the calling of God becomes clear, we submit to it. And, uh, and so as the Lord, if the Lord's working in your heart about it, please talk to me, okay? Talk to Pastor Andrew. It's a command to shepherd. That's the word, to shepherd. Shepherd this flock that is God's. We saw this last week. This is this flock that Jesus purchased with his own blood. Be so careful how you shepherd, how you lead and feed the flock is precious. You are precious in God's sight. And we need to work carefully to shepherd cautiously the flock. I appreciate Mookie's seven Ps that he mentioned last week when he read this. The pastor is to shepherd or pastor the flock, to provide for the flock, to protect the flock. Right? That rod is not just for bringing the sheep in, it's for chasing the wolf out. To preside over or govern the flock. That's that overseer job. To preach and teach the flock. To prepare the flock. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And to pray for the flock. I went through the pastoral epistles. First, second Timothy, Titus. And, and uh, didn't have time for it this morning. And we'll, in Sunday school, we'll try it next time. Just looked at the commands. Uh, for the, there's a lot of commands for pastors. And I just want to expose those to the church. To say, look, if, if I'm failing in one area, please tell me. Pastor Andrew would say the same thing. This is an open book. This is our job. Right? And this is kind of awkward maybe that I'm sharing this. But this is the reason we chose First Peter and Acts. Because both of those were actually given to the assembly with the pastor to read publicly. Okay, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus is given to the church. But it's really directed to the pastor, the pastor to read. But, but these two are actually to be read in the assembly. Okay. So that's why we're looking at these publicly. I, I, could, I, I could go through, I, I'm not going to do it because it's page after page after page. Um, but but if, you, if you want to, you can. 
please tune in and, and listen to them. But let me just, the, the one that is repetitive, there's a lot about character and then a lot about the, the verbal ministry of the shepherd. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge. So this is the concluding one to Timothy as Paul is ready to die. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So he calls a solemn oath to the pastors of the church. And this is what he lays on them. Preach the word. Right? This is, this is the duty of the pastor. Preach what? Whatever you want to preach the Bible. Not Reader's Digest. Not what Oprah talked about last week. Preach the word. Jesus is the word. So you preach Christ through the word. I love Spurgeon, right? What are, keep going. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn their ears from the truth aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And, and there's just so many, but, but that would be one of the summary ones of a lot of the verbal commands there in 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. Shepherd the flock through teaching and preaching. That's not just from the pulpit, that's individually. I think this is important too. It's not just this command, uh, it's a command to shepherd, but also it's a command to shepherd exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And so this, this gets to this other side of this where, where it's not just the pastors doing everything. Right? So about eight to ten years ago, totally shifted our discipleship focus because I really felt like I was not doing well here. I still need to do so much better. But, but we recognize you know, my job is to oversee the, the, the church and equip the saints to do the work of this discipleship. And so we, we strive by God's grace to, to divide our church up into groups where you all are encouraging one another. Right? We do that in fellowship meals. We do that organically as we meet for me, you know, whatever. But we try to organize that to where we're meeting these grace groups and we're encouraging each other around the word. Um, and so you exercise leadership as well as you encourage the family to grow in the faith. This is that idea of episkopos, to, to look over, to oversee, not to do it all, but to see it done, uh, to delegate. This is what our ministry teams are about. This is what our discipleship groups are about. Um, and then by God's grace, the Lord raises up teachers, and, and we have you know, Sunday school classes as well. Okay. The motive. What's the motive on this? Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. According to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not as lording it over, but providing to be examples. So you have these contrasts in this. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. Summarize it in three different points here. First of all, God's will and not yours. Right? Just because uh, you're serving at a church does not mean you need to be an elder. You should not feel like compelled to this if God does not call you to it. And perhaps that happens in churches. So it's not under compulsion, but voluntarily. There's no draft. The church can't draft someone. God does that. 
Um, but according to the will of God, according to as God would want us to serve. And so, so again, God's calling, there's a divine calling. And I had to do this in seminary after I was almost finished with seminary. I had to pause it all and say, God, is, is this something that just my mom wants me to do? Is some heart searching? Or is this something that my, my church wanted me to? I wanted to ever since I was a kid. Like I was preaching at age five. Um, I don't know, maybe six. I still remember that. But, but I was like, you know what? That's not something God, like if it's not something God, I'm not going to do it. And so I had to put that all on hold and spend a couple, a couple weeks fasting before the Lord and listening to preaching. And, and God confirmed in my own heart, no, this isn't just God, my will. This is what God, according to the will of God. Not for profit, non-profits. But the idea here is not for sordid gain. Sordid gain. Right? First Timothy mentions if the, the Lord blesses a church where they're able to pay someone to do this, that is great. But, but the, whenever that happens, there's this motive that comes in. Boy, is there dishonesty involved? Is there deceit involved at all in the matter of payment? Uh, not gaining under the table or uh, with, with, uh, without full propriety, right? So, so, like, this is just, this is what gives a black eye. You may have a thousand pastors in a room that are doing just great with this, and then one of them will get on the New York Times, right? Because they're really horrible examples of this. But there's, there are a lot of bad examples of this. Um, I was just reading about this one guy who went crazy on social media because he started lashing out at his people for not buying him this, like, mega expensive watch. Thousands of dollars. And uh, he says, I don't know if I should quote this, it's, it's pretty offensive. Um, and so, and so... Uh, People just said, you can't, even the world said, this is just wrong. This is just wrong. Filthy lucre. We have a guy just north of us here in the city, right? His name is Dollar. He's worth 27 million of them. <laughs> and he needs his, on top of that, he needs his $60 million private jet. This is filthy lucre. This is the wrong, it's really clear this is the wrong motive. And so all of these Warnings with false teachers has to do with this, this idea of, of gain, but not with eagerness. It's like, I, I want to do this in order to receive either a platform and prominence for my name or, or some sort of gain for myself. I'm doing this to gain instead of to give. Number three there, this is another important one, not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but providing be an example to the flock. So not profit, but with all your heart. Not as a dictator, but as an example. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge. Right? You're not a, a dictator. ESV translates it well, not domineering. Um, there's this, this leader that is driving the sheep. And there's this leader that's up ahead saying, let's go, come on. Encouraging the sheep to follow one is wrong, one is right. and It's not domineering. It's an example. This is the way. Let's walk in it. Let's do it. 
think the world is really picking up on this. I think in the 80s and 90s, churches went through this phase, but, but CEOs went through this phase. And maybe you're working for a boss that's still this way. They're just like loud and in charge. It's called control command. Reading a great book on leadership by Covey that's, that really, that really I want to get better at this and better at this. So uh, he's, he's contrasting right now. He's just saying you can't lead that way anymore in the secular world. It's got to be inspiring and trusting, right? Not controlling and commanding. So the secular world is just discovering what First Peter told us. It's all, all over. The Bible just knows it all so much sooner. Not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but providing to be examples to the flock. And then you have this great, great reward. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right? There, there is a reward. Right? The gain is not here on earth. Right? The, the, the retirement is not here on earth. It's in heaven. Right? We just keep working until we fall over dead. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to retire. I think some shepherds need to retire and, and kind of down phase their working. Right? But, but this, is, this is, the end is at the finish line when we die. When the chief shepherd appears and there's this crown of glory, the idea is a, a, um, uh, someone who finishes a, a race or even a general that finishes the battle and the chief shepherd, the, the chief uh, king would give them a wreath. But that faded away. And the winner of the race, the wreath fades away. But this one will never fade. There's this glory and it. It's, it's interesting, the Bible talks about these rewards in a way that it's hard to understand, but what you do in life will be rewarded in the next life. We will be judged, not condemned, because Christ has come down on our place, but, but we will be rewarded for what we've done, and, and whether you've built on, with wood, hay, and stubble with the wrong motives, or for Jesus. And so I don't know what that looks like completely, but, but if I could just encourage shepherds to, to keep, keep serving because Jesus, at the end, it will be clear. It will be clear. And I do believe that, that those who are the most prominent will not be seen. But my, my faithful brothers in the Midwest or over there in, in the Middle East, um, they're going to be the ones that are shining really bright. They gave up everything. Okay. What about all of us? So let's get into verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. So elders lead. So he's, he's referring to this group, this church, and, and there's a, a group of men that are leading, and there's a group that's not leading, it, and, and it would be often with age. We don't do well in our society with this. We do not honor those who are who have age. It's, it's, it's a bad thing. Um, it's a horrible thing. Our culture will learn the hard way. But uh, the church should learn and listen to those who have lived. Right? Those who have raised children, we, we need to learn from you. Right? Um, those who are retired, we need to learn from you how to work. Okay, so the younger men likewise be subject to your elders. So follow. And then all of you. Uh, so the people... And then the action to be subject or follow. And then we're going to summarize this. This is so helpful for us. How does this tie in with this idea of anxiety and humility? 
This is the number one key to leadership and to living. So an urgent command to church's youth, follow your leaders. Follow your leaders. And then all of us, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. If you realize this, our church has a dress code. Our church has a dress code. For the members and the faithful attenders, you are required to wear this to church every Sunday as you interact with church members. What is that that we are to wear? All of you be clothed with humility. That's it. That is the dress code of the church. Humility. Putting others up. Exalting God. Putting others before you. Not because you want to be humble, but because you know that by God's grace, you deserve hell. You deserve hell, but by God's grace, you're going to heaven. And those people around you are people that Christ died for. Jesus loved them so much. They were so valuable to Jesus. This is why everything ties back to the gospel. That person next to you was so valuable in God's eyes that his son died for them, shed his blood. How dare we snub anyone? Because everyone is precious in God's eyes. So we have this high respect for one another that comes straight from the gospel. Straight from humbling ourselves at the cross and we stay on our knees. We walk the rest of our lives on our knees. Jesus' bleeding sigh. So what do we put on? We put on humility. We have humility toward one another. I'm just, just... Acting in humility toward each other. I'm serving other. I'm praying for the saints. I'm visiting them. I'm, I'm right, the, the elders, it's primary as spiritual serving, but all of us are willing to wash each other's feet, serve each other in that way. What is, what is dirty on you? How can I help you? I'm encouraging the saints. I'm entreating the saints. I'm setting an example for the saints. This is for all of us to do. That person is someone Christ died for. Jesus washed the feet of the saints. He washed the feet of Judas. Well, that person's going to betray me. Yeah, they might. And you still wash their feet. I love how Northland, this is no longer, the school's no longer. No, I think they are actually. Maybe they're a camp now. Northland University, they gave this out to their, their graduates. Everyone who graduated, they would give this towel that said, Be great, serve. Isn't that great? You learn the secret to life when you learn the secret of service. This is the secret to leadership, but this is the secret to living. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. Why? Well, this is one reason God resists the proud. God is opposed to that person who's only thinking of themselves. But he gives unusual grace to the humble. God opposes to the face, resists them. And so there's a negative, there's a resistance from God. If you live your life me-centered, focused on all your own needs, all your own wants, all your own desires, God will resist you. You will be opposed by God. 
You will never receive the gospel, of course, because you won't humble yourself to believe it, but even in life. And so as you humble yourself, the reward is that God gives you grace. As you lower yourself, you have grace. Grace is everything you need. God's righteousness, yes, at Christ's expense, but it's God giving you all that you need. All of God's everything for all of your nothing. Grace for work. Grace for school. Grace for parenting. Grace for singling. Grace for pastoring. Grace for honoring your parents, for serving your family, for meeting your obligations, for denying yourself and living godly. You need grace for all of that. And you will not find it in yourself. You have to humble yourself and say, God, I can't do this. I need you. And that's when he infuses his grace. And he waits till then. If you keep trying to establish your own self-righteousness, your own diligence, you will have none of it. There's this sense of humility that calls out to God that God God gives you grace. Lord, I need you. And he gives it to you. Annie Hawks was 37, wife of three little kiddos, busy, Brooklyn girl. She said one day she became so filled with the sense of God's nearness that, that she, she, she said, whether joy or pain, I feel the closest to God or I need him every hour, joy or pain. She said later on she would come to know the sense of that going through a very deep, difficult time of pain. But when she was 37, she wrote these words, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Temptations lose their power. I need thee every hour, enjoy your pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. This is, what we, this is the, the heart that cries out, I need the Lord, I need grace, I need grace, and that's the person that finds his enabling. What happens when you humble yourself and wear God's grace? Uh, well, God exalts you. God exalts you. And this is where this ties into leadership. As you humble yourself in serving others, you just find that God allows you to, to serve in leadership. It's, it's, a, it's actually the way you end up serving. Another great leadership book, uh, From Good to Great, by Collins. Uh, another one of these that, that's very well known. It's just so interesting to me that all these leadership books finally find out that the Bible was told them all along. Right? It, they highlight that the, the greatest CEOs that take companies from good to great and make stay great. You know what chapter one is? Servant leadership. Not the, not the person that's bowling everybody over Control command, but this servant leadership. This is what Jesus did. He leaves us this example as parents. He leaves us this example as someone who's wanting to lead their classmates, their cubicle mates. Humble yourself. Serve the others. But humble yourself, first of all, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you in all these, all these situations. You're nothing, plus God's everything is all-sufficiency. Christ is the one who gives us enabling grace. And so we do humble ourselves, and, and, and we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, recognize that he's going to exalt us at the proper time. And that may be 
in the resurrection, but often it's in this life. Well, how do you do that? This number seven, verse seven, is really the climax of this. How do I humble myself and receive him, uh, his enabling grace? Casting all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. This is how this happens. This is how you receive God's grace, is you take your anxiety. Actually, I like the King James Version, all this. The King James Version says what? Casting all your what? Cares. I like that. Casting all your cares, for he cares for you. Because in the original, both of those words, they're the same word. Casting all your cares on God, because God cares for you. Isn't that awesome? God cares for you. That's why you can cast your care on him. What cares are you holding today? Sometimes they're anxieties, but often there's just, I I care so much about this. I care so much about this. I care so much about this. I have so many cares. All of your responsibility are cares. These care bearers. You've got to somehow maintain all of these cares. And they can be loud. They can cause us to anxiety. Maybe a, a work situation, a financial situation, a relationship situation, a very difficult health situation. And it's something that you care about so much that it distracts you and it even becomes an anxiety. You need to take all of those cares. And what do you do? Cast them. Throw them. Throw them on God who cares for you. He actually cares for you. He is anxious for you. Take that thought. What is it that's your care? God cares about it. You see the match there? You have that problem. You have that care. Right now you just you need to throw it on God because he cares about it. And you leave it there. I have a stone here. Some of you guys need to go to a, a river a little pond. Corona Park has it, right? Just walk over there. Pick up a stone, and you got to think this way. you got to say, you know what? This care, you just tie that care to it. You say, God, I'm going to just, like, I don't know. And this is the humility part of it. I can't handle it anymore, God. I'm cared out. I'm anxious about it. I can't sleep because of it. Someone who said, at the end of their life, they, at the end of their day, they they. Instead of thinking about something, they put all their cares upon God because he doesn't need to sleep, right? I need to sleep. I need to throw that care upon him because God's going to be up all night. You just take this thing and you just throw it in the water. Cast it in there. Recognize that the, the sea of God's mighty hand can carry that for you. Don't worry about it. Rest in God. Worry pulls tomorrow's cloud over today's sunshine. Swindoll, that's, that's true. Just leave it in God's hand. This is the key to life. This is the key to leadership. Uh, the Lord taught us this, washing the disciples' feet. Um, heads bowed and eyes closed. Let's pray. Let me encourage you to humble yourself today. Take whatever that care is. All of you are leaders and so I'd encourage you to, to, to adopt this shepherding mindset in your leadership, in your grace group, in your ministry team, um, but also in your school, in your workplace, your family, 
as you continue to, to take care of others, not worrying about seeing seen, being seen, God will use you as, as a leader there in your community. But perhaps there's something that you have, you have been proud about it because you're trying to take care of it yourself. It becomes a care you're wanting to care for yourself. Would you right now, quietness of this moment, cast it on the Lord? Okay, let's all cast those things on the Lord because he cares for you. You'd like to pray with someone, I'll be in the back lobby, be happy to pray with you, but let's all respond to the Lord's message here in faith and at times repentance.